You should be in Mark chapter 1. We are starting a series uh, through the Gospel of Mark. If you weren't here last week, you're not too far behind. This is only week two, so you can play a little bit of catch-up if you need to. But we are looking at Mark's Gospel and the, all of the ways that it shows us the unexpectedness, uh, the unexpectedness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That word unexpected is used deliberately because I think that's what we're going to see. As that's what we hoped, uh, hoped to show you last week. Just how the, un- the ways Jesus comes to us in an unexpected way. He subverts what we think or assume about the, sci- about the Messiah in his very coming as the Messiah. We, we noted last week that he is the Lord who serves. He is the king who dies. And in that way, he comes unexpectedly. He is the Son of God. Look at verse 1 here in Mark chapter 1. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We, the reader of the gospel of Mark, are made known the very identity of this man Jesus from the very outset. He is the Son of God. If you look at verse 11, you see that same identity being declared unto him. It says, And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You'll note, actually turn with me to the end of the Gospel of Mark chapter 15. And you'll hear this same uh, identifier of Jesus come out. Mark chapter 15, look at verse 37. This is at the end of the crucifixion account. And it says, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost. He said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. You'll note all of those declarations come in this gospel to point us to who this man Jesus was. He was perhaps saying things that were unlikely, that were unexpected, but he was the Messiah. And really that's what this gospel shows us. It says this is who Jesus is. This is Jesus, the Son of God. And this is what he did. And this is what he does. And this is what he's going to continue to do. This is what forms the basis of all of our hope as believers in Christ. It's the fact that this man who came and served was none other than God's own son. There's the fact of the gospel. Look again, Mark 1 verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's laying out the facts of all of this glorious history of this one Jesus Christ. And it's this very record of history that forms uh, our faith. It's what steadies it. It's what stabilizes it. It's the fact that this record of Jesus Christ is one that is a fact. We noted that last week. That this good news, this gospel, which means the good news of God, is reporting of that very thing. It's reporting of news. It's reporting of facts. This is who Jesus was. And in fact, one writer says it this way. The great preacher Alexander McLaren. He says, Christianity is a record of historical fact. And that all the world's life and blessedness lie in the history of a human life and death. Christ is Christianity. And his biography is the good news for every child of man. 
This is what we are given in Mark. And yes, as we noted last week, that these Gospels aren't necessarily biographies in the modern sense of what we have come to know them. But they do present to us Christ's very life. Christ's very death and resurrection. And this is the good news. These truths are what give us the hope and the faith to continue and carry on in our lives. They give us the hope that this Son of God has come to bring to completion all of what was promised and prophesied in the Old Testament. He is, as we might say, He is the divine solution. He's bringing everything about. He's bringing everything uh, truer and better. And in fact, that's what I want to look at this morning. That Jesus is the true and better one. But what, in what ways is He truer and better than all the other things that we might believe in? You see, that's what Jesus is. He is the true and better form of anything that we might put our hopes in. But in how? In which ways? Well, look again this morning at our text. Verse 9 down through verse 15. But in verses 9 through 11, we see firstly that Jesus is the true and better servant. The true and better servant. Look at verse 9. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We see that Jesus here is the true and better servant in his baptism. Mark jumps right into this account of Jesus being baptized in the Jordan by John the baptizer. He jumps right in and knows the inclusion of the detail, which isn't included in the other Gospels, of Jesus' journey. He says in verse 9, And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. Jesus made a journey to see John. He was seeking him out. If we uh, know of where Jesus was coming from, it's approximately about 60 miles in terms of where he has to go to get to where John is. And that little detail of Jesus' journey, I think, indicates the intention of Jesus' heart. This is something that he just didn't happen into. It wasn't just something that he uh, thought that he needed to do. It's something that he knew must be done. He must be baptized of John in the Jordan. He's making a point to seek John out, to find him. And he comes up to him and says, John, I need you to baptize me. And if you remember from the other accounts, John is somewhat surprised by Jesus coming up to him and saying this. I need to baptize you. I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals, Jesus. And here you are. You're coming to me to be baptized. But what was Jesus doing here? Jesus insists on being baptized by John. But what was the point? He's showing that he is the true and better servant. You see, when we are baptized, when we are immersed in the waters and raised up again, it is, we, are, we are believing and we are testifying the glorious symbol of our new birth. That's what's happening in baptism we are showing to all of those, making a public declaration that what has, of what has taken place in our soul. That Jesus himself, his spirit, has washed us of all of our sins. He's taken that away. He's washed us and bathed us in his grace. Baptism is this sacramental token and testament of our repentance. 
of our uh, turning away from ourself and turning towards God himself. It points to us being cleansed in God's own righteousness. It's a confirmation of our belief. As it says earlier in Mark chapter 1 verse 4, it is that very thing. It is the baptism of repentance. That's our baptism. It symbolizes us coming out of the waters holy and clean. Not because of the water being special, but because we have put our faith in Jesus' blood and righteousness. But is that what's happening here? Jesus is here asking John for baptism. But that certainly isn't what is happening in this baptism. Because Jesus is sinless. He of course has nothing to repent of. He has nothing for which he needs to ask for forgiveness. This you see is, is an altogether different baptism. But why insist on it? What's the point? Again look at verse 10. And straightway coming up out of the water. He saw the heavens opened. And the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. You see here, Jesus' baptism is him identifying himself with sinners. It's him connecting himself. It's him, it's him identifying with mankind in mankind's sin. You see, because when Jesus was plunged into the Jordan's waters, he was emptying of himself and assuming the form of a servant. That's where we get that glorious verse in Philippians chapter 2. Let me read it for you. Uh, you can turn there if you like. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. This is what's happening in Jesus' baptism. Philippians 2.5 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. This is what Jesus was doing. He was identifying himself with sinners. He was humbling himself. You see, when we are baptized, we are raised to walk in newness of life, right? That's what we are symbolizing, that we have put our faith in Jesus, and now we are His beloved children. You see, instead of being raised to newness of life, when Jesus was raised out of the Jordan, He was raised to obedience unto death. Look again in Philippians 2 verse 8. And being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself. And became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. When Jesus was baptized, this is what he was being baptized into. A life of death. This was his mission. This is what he came to earth to do. He was the son of God who came to die for sinners. And to do that, he was baptized in our very waters. When we enter the water, we come up clean. We enter dirty and we come up clean. When Jesus enters the waters, he enters clean and comes up dirty. He comes up wearing our skin, you might say. Wearing our sin. And in that way, he forms and he symbolizes the fact and prefigures that he is taking on all of our condemnation onto himself. Because he's been baptized for us. Baptized into our death. It symbols that glorious truth. In this way, this baptism of Christ is the embodiment of God's divine empathy for sinners. It's God himself coming down and taking on humanity, taking on flesh 
That he might save that very flesh. That he might redeem, as he says elsewhere in Revelation, that he might remake it. Notice that word in verse 10. Where it says, he saw the heavens opened. That literally means he saw the heavens torn in two or uh, rent in two. And it's reminiscent of the prayer Isaiah prays. Look back at Isaiah chapter 64. Because we see that same word. Isaiah 64 and verse 1. Where we have the great prayer of the prophet. Look at what he says. Oh that thou wouldest rend the heavens. That thou wouldest come down. That the mountains might flow down at thy presence. It's the same word, the same terminology. So then we might say that Jesus is that answer to prayer. He is the answer to Isaiah's prayer. He is God come down. He has rent the heavens in two. And he has come down in flesh. He is God condescended. Condescended to our low estate. Yes, even in our very baptism. We learn From Matthew chapter 3 verse 15. That Jesus says that he has to do this to fulfill all righteousness. This baptism. This uh, uh, scene of Jesus taking on the form of a servant. Is the first step in the accomplishment of our righteousness. Which is the power of God unto salvation. Why and how? Because he likens this baptism as a foreshadowing of his death. Look later on in Mark chapter 10. He says this very thing when talking about his baptism. It's a prefigurement. It's a foreshadowing of death and resurrection. Look at Mark chapter 10 verse 38. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of? And be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. He's saying you don't know what you're talking about. My baptism is the true and greater baptism. Not of newness of life but of death and resurrection. This is what mine is. This is my baptism. It's Jesus' plunge into the waters prefigures his plunge into death for us. It symbolizes the fact that he has taken on that death onto himself on your behalf. It's this pledge of redemption. Just as we, as we enter the waters and we come out to walk in newness of life, we have pledged our lives to walk in faith and by faith in God's ways. This is the same with Jesus. He's pledging to the world that he has come to save the world. He has come to be the world's redeemer. And such is why Jesus receives that word from the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He's well pleased with Him. Because He knows what He has come to accomplish. He knows what He has come to do. He has come to uh, establish the remission of sins. As we saw from verse 4. He has come to be the ransom of sinners in his own death on the cross. This is what Jesus has come to do. He serves us by being baptized for us. Baptized in our death. And in that way he's the true and better servant. But look quickly at verses 12 and 13. Because we see here that Jesus is the true and better substitute. Look at verse 12. 
And immediately the spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Here we see that Jesus is the true and better substitute in his battle. Because notice that Jesus is immediately driven into the wilderness. You'll note that word immediately. As we noted last time, that's a word that will occur all throughout this gospel. It's this sense of urgency that drives the narrative forward. And what John Mark is trying to convey through this gospel. And here he's saying that right after Jesus' pledge and confirmation as the Son of God. He is driven into the wilderness. Driven by the same spirit that was confirming him at his baptism. You'll note that. And the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And this same spirit says it drives him into the wilderness in verse 12. I think here is where we can learn a very significant truth about temptation. It says that he is driven into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. Obviously then. Temptation is not necessarily a sign of wandering from God. Sometimes it's there on purpose. It's there to grow you. It's there to strengthen you. It's not there for your ruin. It's not there to make you fall. It's there to make you surrender to God's will. It's to make you strong. Not in your own strength. But in Jesus' strength for you. But notice further. That he's driven into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. And there he was in the wilderness. Verse 13. Tempted of Satan. Satan there for 40 days it says. You know we often think of Jesus' temptation from the account which is in Matthew chapter 4. Which gives us those pretty distinct three instances of temptation. But if you read this account it actually I think uh, conveys to us a better picture of what's happening. Which is the fact that these 40 days weren't just marked by three instances of temptation. It's 40 days of temptation. He was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan. He was under attack the whole time. This 40-day sojourn in the wilderness was 40 days of constant attacks and assaults from the adversary. This is what Jesus was enduring. He was under the seduction of Satan. He was in the wilderness. He was isolated. He was alone. And he was under attack. He was in conflict with the evil one. He was in conflict with, this, uh, with the devil. The adversary is what that word literally means. In this account, the entire gospel account of Mark is filled with this theme. It's a narrative theme of good versus evil. Of, of Jesus uh, in confronting evil in the face and casting it out. You'll note, actually, later on in the chapter, in verse 23, we have the first exorcism that's recorded here in the scriptures, or at least here in Mark's gospel. And that's something that occurs throughout this gospel account, is Jesus taking on darkness head on, because, of course, he is the light. But notice here in this battle, verse 13, notice who's with him. It says, the angels ministered unto him. Jesus, of course, was not left to fight this battle in complete isolation. Angels were there ministering unto him and giving him comfort and sustenance. 
But I think the truth holds, true, holds firm for us too. That when we are in temptation, neither are we alone. But I think the greater import of that statement that the angels ministered unto him. Is just that it reveals and it heightens the conflict that's happening. Notice and he was there in the wilderness 40 days tempted of Satan. I think the presence of angels bring this battle that Jesus is enduring for us. To we might say a cosmic level. There's angels here. It's not just something about uh, the earth that's going on. It's something about all of the created order. There's something happening here that's important. Satan's temptations to the Lord Jesus weren't just about ruling empires. It wasn't just about Jesus bowing down before Satan himself. It was about eternity. This was a cosmic battle. This is the first You might say skirmish between good and evil is right here. And here Jesus is standing in our place as our true and better substitute. And in this way, he is better than all of us. Notice that he is in the wilderness. And in that way, I think it reminds me of what happened to God's own people, Israel. Wilderness, as you know, throughout the Old Testament was a sign of God's curse. Such is why when the Israelites were complaining and griping and moaning about the Lord and how they didn't think that he was providing, he cast them off into the wilderness for a generation. And here we see that Jesus has entered the wilderness himself. And in that way, he is better than Israel. Because Why? Because he goes into the wilderness and doesn't forsake his father, but he remembers him. And in the very place of Israel's rebellion, Jesus Christ is victorious. He enters into that battle and he takes on the curse for us and he comes out victorious. But notice also, more importantly, not only is he better than Israel here in this battle, he's better than Adam You see, the cosmic level of this battle, I think, makes me think about another battle which happened back in the Garden of Eden. Of course, you know what I'm referring to, Genesis chapter 3. Where Adam and Eve were tempted by the same adversary, and yet they failed. They lost the battle. And see here, Jesus is better than Adam because he endured all of Satan's taunts and he came out victorious. And he did so in a desert place, not in a garden, but in a desert. Adam and Eve's fall points us to the faith of the true and better Adam, which is Jesus Christ. We get that in Romans chapter 5. You have to see this. Look at Romans chapter 5 and look at verse 18. Because this is precisely what Jesus was accomplishing. In this cosmic conflict with the adversary. He was undoing all that Adam did in the garden. Look at Romans 5 verse 18. Paul is writing and he says. Therefore as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation. That's Adam and Eve and their sin. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. 
This is Jesus for us. He has the obedient one in our place. He is the obedient one who is undoing all that Adam did. As he plunged creation into sin and darkness, Jesus would stand in our place as our true and better substitute and bring in and usher in a realm and dispensation of grace. Because he is the true and better substitute. He takes on all of Satan's temptations and he resists them. And he comes out victorious. All of the results of Adam's sin are erased by the second Adam's salvation. By him rising above the temptations and not succumbing to them. What Adam could not do in the garden, the second Adam does in a desert He withstands all of the temptations and vanquishes the accuser. He vanquishes this adversary. He wins the battle. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. Actually, look with me really quick at the scene from Genesis 3. Because you have to see this. In Genesis 3, we have that account of Adam and Eve failing and sinning in the garden. And in verse 17, the Lord is laying down the curses on the human race. And notice what he says to Adam. Genesis 3, 17. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. In the same way that Adam endured all these curses, Jesus endured these curses for us. Jesus sweats blood from his brow in a garden as he prays to God for us. And he wears, he's just not around thorns, he wears a crown of thorns for us. And dies to the dust of the earth for us. And therefore he conquers all of the curses that are laid down by the fall. By him taking them on and being the true and better Adam for us. He stands in our place. He is our true and better substitute who wins the day. This is Jesus, the Son of God, standing in our place, standing on our behalf. He is the substitute who is victorious. He is victorious in his battle. But look back at Mark 1, lastly. At verses 14 and 15. Because not only is Jesus Christ. The true and better servant. The true and better substitute. But lastly verses 14 and 15. Jesus is the true and better sovereign. Look at verse 14. Now after that John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And saying the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe The gospel. Here he is. Jesus Christ. The true and better sovereign for our belief. He comes and announces that he is here. The king is here. You'll notice. 
The the remark there in verse 14. Now after that John was put in prison. The forerunner, the, the herald, the messenger of the king's news is no longer on the scene. And in fact we won't pick up John's story till later on in chapter 6. But he's not necessarily needed now. Why? Because the king is here. The true and better one is on the scene. He is come and note Jesus' message. Verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. You'll have to remember who Mark is most likely writing to. He's writing to Romans. Of course, they knew about kingdoms. They knew about sovereigns. They knew about those magistrates in the palaces who ruled their country. Who ruled their kingdoms. And Mark is here saying that a true and a better sovereign has come. One who is way better than all the Caesars that have ever been in Rome's history. This is Jesus. He is the better king. The better sovereign. He is at hand. Which means he is near. He is close. The kingdom of God is close. How? In the person of Christ Himself. Notice what he preaches. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It is close. Repent ye and believe the gospel. When Jesus is preaching here, when he's preaching this good news, he's literally preaching himself. Repent ye and believe in me is what he's saying. Repent and believe your true and better king. I am here. I am way better than any other king in your life. Even yes the king that you might presume is yourself. I am better than all the kings that you might have and believe in. I am the true and better sovereign. Such is why his message is repent and believe. Repent. Change your mind. Turn away from all those things that you can embrace other than me. And embrace my message to you. I am the true and better sovereign. This is Jesus' message. It's a message that calls us to relinquish our throne. To relinquish our control of our lives. We often think we are the king of our lives, don't we? That we have control. That we are the ones who are running it. We are making the decisions. We are making the orders. We are the ones who are doing it. But Jesus is here saying, I am the true and better sovereign. It is a freeing thing to cast ourselves upon the sovereignty of God. It's also a scary thing. Because it means we have to give up what we love most. Control. We have to give up what we think that we can at least have a part in. Controlling our lives. And Jesus is here saying, give up control and relish in my sovereignty. He is the true and better king. He has come to destroy all of our fickle and flimsy personal kingdoms and establish his own. He has come to establish the kingdom of God. And it is only as we embrace this message that he is the true and better one. That he is the true and better servant on our behalf. The true and better servant in our battle. And the true and better sovereign in which that we can believe. It is only then as we submit ourselves to that true and better one. That we will find Christ to be the king of our lives. We will find that we will be serving King Christ with our very lives.
Such is why we come and we have to ask, who rules your heart? Who is sitting on the throne of your soul? Is it yourself or is it the true and better sovereign? Who is ruling your heart and your actions? Who are you believing in? Are you believing in your service or are you trusting in the true and better servant? Are you believing that you can win the day by your fortitude or are you trusting in the true and better substitute? Who rules your life? Is it King you or is it King Christ? Let us pray.